Mark chapter 9, verse number 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son for, to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it, throw, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, well, it's been happening since childhood, and it has uh, often cast him into the fire, into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, hmm, all things are possible for, who, for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd come, came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And we had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. We also should pray right now. Father, uh, again, we, we do come back to you and, and we do ask that you would help us as we uh, just kind of dissect and and go through this word, Lord, and, and just see what you would have for us, God. And, and I'm just reminded of, of the scripture and how it just sharpens us and it molds us and it makes us more into your image and it is a light into our path. And so, Lord, we pray that as when we leave this room, that every one of us would say, look how glorious and majestic our Christ the King is. And it is in your name we pray. Amen. This is the fourth and the last, um, I, I guess we could call it, exorcism that we find in the Gospel of Mark. One of the unique things about going through um, a, a book of the Bible, kind of just line by line, is it forces us to address topics that, that I would likely not want to talk about, all right? I, I can assure you that as I am studying and as I am I'm reading through the Scripture, I'm not the guy who's got, who, who's got the Bible open looking for the demon possession stories. I mean, may, you know, and, I, I'm, and I'm not judging if that's you. That's, that's fine. Um, maybe. Um, I don't know. Uh, but it, I'm not the guy who's just like, you know what today I'm going to preach about? Demon possession, because you know what everybody needs to hear about? Demon possession, right? It's just like this, this story and this narrative. And this is the fourth time that Mark 
writes about an account that talks about the power of Christ over the dominion and the domain of darkness. But this time it's a little different, and this time it, it's a little bit more unsettling. This time it's a little bit more unsettling because we're not just dealing with an adult. We're not just dealing with someone who is of age. This is a young little child. And the Bible clearly doesn't say that this is a medical issue. No, this is being tortured by a demon. Now, it's interesting what we just got off of, right? If you remember last week, what we just talked about is we were at this mountaintop experience where Jesus had been revealed in this glorious way, where the glorious divine nature of Jesus was being shown through his skin. And we call this the transfiguration. And so on this mountaintop experience, you have a father that comes down and says, look at my son, look to Jesus, listen to him, and the father is pleased. And how we compare and contrast this is right here in the valley. You have a father that's tortured. Uh, on the mountaintop, you have, a, you have Christ the Son who is being revealed in all of his perfection and his divine nature. And here in the valley, you have a son that is demonically oppressed and tortured by demons. Here on the mountaintop, you have all of this, this glorious experience. You have the fog or the cloud of God. You have the voice of God, but here in the valley, immediately what you have is the darkness exposing itself and trying to distort the very image of God because what is happening to this boy is that very thing, that the image of God that is on this child is being distorted and perverted. Now, I want to look through this in context so that we can kind of see what the Lord is kind of doing in this passage. Mark gives us a very straightforward and uh, thorough description of this account. And you can find this in Matthew's gospel and, Mark's go and, and in Luke's gospel in just only a few verses. But, but in this account, it's, it's quite lengthy in, in what Mark is trying to describe what is happening. Here you have Pharisees arguing. And those jokers are just like the unwanted guest that comes to your house. Or, or, or maybe, maybe if I were more unsanctified, I'd say it this way. They're the unwanted family member that nobody invited to the Christmas dinner, but here they are anyway. Oh, y'all ain't got that kind of family member? I got plenty. I'll share with you. Call me later. We'll figure it out. Here they are. They come out of the hedges. They come out of the woodwork. Everywhere there's a problem and everywhere there is a story being written about and where God's power is about to be displayed, here are these religious leaders popping their two cents worth in it as if anybody wants to hear what they have to say. But here they are. They think so much of themselves that they have to be there. They have to be involved in every situation. And not only that, if they've got to give you their opinion on the matter, as if nobody even asked for their opinion. And not only do you have these Pharisees who are gathered around the situation, then you have this crowd come in. And this crowd is debating, and they're questioning, and they're wondering. And the question is, who can help this child? On any day of the week, you can turn on the news, and you could see something breaking 
Breaking news, this. This terrible situation over here is happening. This horrible situation is, is taking place over there. And the very same question is being asked as you watch the news. Who can help in this situation? And the answer is only one. And there's only one answer. It's Jesus. Who can help this situation? And then here comes Jesus down off of his mountaintop experience. And he comes to them and he says, uh, you know, after all this buzz of Jesus doing all these great and glorious things, after Jesus driving out demons, after Jesus healing, after Jesus doing all these things, there's this buzz about him. And here comes Jesus walking down the mountain with his three boys, Peter, James, and John. <laughs> and, it's, and it's so interesting because Jesus asks them this question. What, 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 what y'all arguing about? What, what, what is, what, what's wrong with y'all? Why are, you, why are you arguing with these people? And the answer comes out, and a, crowd, and a man comes out of the crowd, and he says to them, Teacher, I've brought my son, and you've got to understand the frustration of the father. I've gone to those boys that you've discipled. And they weren't able to help me. I've gone to, you've got to understand as a father, as a loving father, you would go through anything to see that your child would receive the help and care. And so we don't know the extent of the help and, and the search for help that this father went through. But he's heard there's this buzz with these disciples, but they weren't able to help him. And so he goes to the one who will help him. And so look at the boy's condition. Because he's in a predicament that he has been in for, for since his early childhood. And the nature of his predicament is a demonic possession. I mean, that's it. And it gives you hints of that it sounds like epilepsy, but we know from the scripture that it is not a medical condition. If you associate a medical condition with demonic um, oppression, then you have a bad view of the scripture. Just because somebody is sick doesn't mean they got a demon in them. And if you were to assume that this boy has a medical condition, you have a very bad uh, reading of Scripture. The Bible is very explicit, and it's clear. What's wrong with the child? He's demon-possessed. Nothing, nothing medically is going on with him, although it sounds like it, but the Bible is clear. Now, there are two views of demonic um, possession that you can take. And there's just, just two views. One, well, there's a three views, but I think there, unfortunately, the church takes on two views. And one of the views that we take is that that seat right there that you're in, there's a demon in it. You better be careful. There's a demon on that screen that you're looking at. There, there's a demon behind that, that bush over there. Uh, there, there. There's a demon. Watch out. Watch out for the demon right there. You know, it's just kind of over-exaggerating of this spiritual demonic presence that's always there waiting for you. Oh, you tripped up? Oh, you tripped up on a demon. No, I tripped up because I'm an idiot and I'm clumsy. Maybe not you. And then there's the other far view that we take with de- demonic possession. And, that is, and that is, there's, there's no demon talk around here. And there's no, there's no such thing as a demon world or, or like there's some demons. And both of these views are very, um, they, they, are, they are errors in those views. 
The problem is that you, you go on so far of both sides that you've, you know, you've just kind of overviewed demonic presence, and then you've underviewed demonic presence. And it's a very negative view. Listen to me. The purpose of demonic possession. There is only one purpose in this. It is to distort and destruct the image of God. That's it. By any means necessary. And if they will do it through a young child, they'll do it. And in this story, we find that this child is possessed by a demon, and this demon is distorting who God has created him to be and perverted the very thing that God has intended for this young man's life. I mean, that's it. Now, notice the father's interaction with Jesus because the father wanted Jesus to do what no other people were able to do for his son. I mean, you, you got to understand, like, news of going out about this Jesus, but Jesus has been gone. And so when this man hears uh, of Jesus coming, he sees his disciples and he goes to Jesus. And he's like, you know, and it's just so sad. He goes to Jesus like, you know, I asked those people that you have been discipling to do it, and yet they were unable to do it. Like, how tragic is that? You know, you've been a disciple of Christ. Christ has been imparting into you. He's been, and you know, if you, if, you, if you remember back in Mark chapter 6, it's been a while since we were back in Mark chapter 6. What did Jesus send them out two by two to do? The answer is not get on the ark. That's a different story. What did he do? Send them out. Preach. Heal the sick. Cast out the demons. And the father comes to Jesus. He has no knowledge of this, but he's probably, I mean, you gotta, he's probably heard wind that these guys, they, they're flowing in a power that not a lot of people are flowing in. And, and he says to Jesus that I asked your disciples and they were unable to do what I asked them to do, so I'm coming to you. That's his expectation. I'm coming to you, Jesus, to do what only I think that you can do. Now, now watch Jesus' interaction because it's going to flow from two things. One, it's going to be almost this, this frustration that Jesus has, and he's going to move from frustration to compassion. Now, watch Jesus' response to this. In verse 19, Jesus is frustrated at this, at this kind of conversation he just had. And he says, Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long can I put up with you. That's exactly what any parent should say to their child when they're frustrated. How long am I going to put up with your foolishness? Right? You have perfect children? Then we'll swap. And you'll be asking them, how long am I going to put up with your foolishness? Jesus isn't just this frustration, isn't in regards to the Father's request. It is in regards to his disciples. How long am I going to put up with your foolishness? Like If you read through, if, if the Gospels are not new to you, you understand that Jesus expresses this type of disdain quite often. How long am I going to deal with this? How long are we going to be unbelieving in this, in this Jewish world here? It's this question of frustration that Jesus has with them. Oh, unbelieving generation, how long? 
I mean, if you, you think of all that's happened since Jesus began his earthly ministry, and, and Mark has recorded, done a great job of recording all of this stuff that's happening. Jesus has brought the light, is the light, and has come to drive out the darkness. And what takes place, immediate response of evil within the boy of this reaction is the spirit within him is almost interacting and notices that the light of Christ is there. And so what does he do? He tries to throw the boy in like this one last attempt to kill the child. And so what Mark is doing here is that he is setting up this scene for dramatic intervention that is going to merge to where Christ's frustration is going to move to compassion. And watch how it moves to compassion. Jesus asked the man, how long has your child been like this? Jesus is not, you know, it'd be really wrong for us to kind of see this as Jesus asking this and dealing with this as some kind of strategic engagement. You know, like, well, if he's been like this for like X amount of years and then so it'll be this and I'll take, I'll take this long to cast out. You know, this is Jesus actually. Like when, when you go to a doctor and you express like, here's what's going on in my body. What does the doctor ask you? How long has it been like this? How long your knee been janky, Matthew? How long you been experiencing these old man's symptoms, sir? How long has it been like this? This is, this is the compassion of Jesus. He's going to get to the root of this. And the father just simply said, he's been like this since he's a child. This is a flesh and blood reality. My, my child has been like this. It's going on and on forever. They've tried to burn him. They've tried to throw him into fires. They've tried to kill him and drown him in water. And he's desperate. And he says to him, the man says to Jesus, and I love this interaction with this man because it gives us a reality of really the human or, or, or rather the Christian walk with Christ. And it exposes a bit of us in, in so many ways. The man replied to Jesus, you know, help us. And I love this part right here. If you can, here's an occasion in the New Testament where I would have loved for this to have been like video recorded, but it wasn't. One day I'll be with Jesus and I'll ask him, what was your expression on your face when the man said, heal him if you can? You know, I think I, think I, gotta, I gotta throw a caution flag on this because as you read this, uh, there's a Pharisee within us or, or maybe a religious type of uh, uh, uppity type of person. Is that how dare this guy s tell Jesus, if you can? Now, if I were there, I wouldn't have said, if you can. You know, we think back, of, back in chapter one when the lepers and they say, if you're willing, that's a different question because they knew he could. And so I want to throw that caution on there and not for you to say, oh, look at this guy. Who does this guy think he is asking Jesus if he can? Does he not know who he is talking to? The problem is, is the real if is in the wrong person. It's not if Jesus can. The question is, is if your humility in the right place. That's the appropriate question. We got the if in the wrong person. The question, and the only question that needs to be asked is whether the man's humility is enough to bow beneath Jesus Christ as king. 
And immediately he says, I believe, help my unbelief. This is probably one of my favorite verses in all of the Gospels because it depicts the Christian life. It is not a rebuke on any of us. It is a conundrum that we all find ourselves in many times in our Christian faith. I believe, but on the other side of my thoughts, help my unbelief. Isn't it? Isn't that the walk of every Christian? It, it, these two stories in how they contrast with each other, one of a mountaintop experience with God and one in the lows and the darkness of the reality of this world is the reality of the Christian walk. One is that I feel really cool right now because I, me and God feel like bros and me and God are really close right now. This just feels so good. And then somehow you find yourself within minutes in the valley of the darkness asking God, can you though? It is the roller coaster that we all will find ourselves at one point or another in your Christian walk. It is I Believe who you say you are, and in the same sentence, yet help my unbelief. This is not a con contradiction at all. It's an explanation of every journey that all of us are on. And so immediately before the crowd comes, Jesus sees the crowd coming, and Jesus wants to deal with this without the nonsense and without the rummage of all the crowd that they're going to bring. Jesus is going to bring this boy and make him new without all these people seeing this. And isn't, isn't that an amazing, that, 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 that's just, that's so amazing how Christ will find us like in, and not make some spectacle out of him finding us and making us free. And when I was in the darkest night of my soul, Christ found me and didn't like bring me out to the whole public and say, look, I found him. He was in a dark spell. I made him in the light of Christ. This is so glorious and a, and a huge statement of what Christ does for us, that in our moment of loneliness, Christ comes to us and he finds us and he makes us clean. And he's going to come to him and this demon shrieks out of him in this final attempt to destroy him. And what do the people say? I mean, they've been, with, they've been following Jesus for quite some time. You know, you know it's a shame he's dead. How, how, how every floundering Christian would respond. Well, it's a shame he's dead. Look what you did, Jesus. Blaming it all on Jesus. And Jesus takes the boy by the hand and he raises him up and he stood up because that's what Jesus Christ does for us. He takes people whose lives have been decimated. He takes people whose lives have been filled with trauma, lives who have been filled with shame, with guilt, with addiction, with whatever. You just want to fill in the blank with whatever your problem has been. And, he, and, he, and this is an image uh, for us, what Christ does for us in our shame, in our guilt. When our lives feel like they have been decimated, Christ takes us by the hand, and he doesn't just, you know, just clean us off and, and just says, you know, just go on about your way. No, Christ makes us a brand new person. 
a boy who was once distorted and where his image was a distortion of the image of God, Christ now comes and cleans him up and makes him back into the image of God that he was supposed to be. And that's, that's, that's the power of the gospel. That the gospel frees us from our life of past and shame. And then this last little part right here, and I'm going to give you a couple of little, little bullet points that I wrote down on all of this. This, this is going to show a, a relying on Jesus, on how much we are to rely on Christ. So Jesus rebukes the evil spirit. He heals the boy. He gives him back to the father. And then there's this closing in the story. And after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive out? Why, why couldn't we drive this demon out, Jesus? Why couldn't we do it? And Jesus gives him an answer, and this answer has to be very careful in how we dissect this. Jesus says to them, this can only come out through prayer. This can only come out by prayer. Maybe another version, another, another in, in Matthew or Luke's gospel says, by prayer and fasting. And this has given rise to many terrible sermons that I've heard in the past. That the only way you'll succeed in life is by so much prayer and so much fasting. You want to drive out demons? Then you got to pray, 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 fast, 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 pray, pray, pray. But that's not what Jesus is saying. There's an issue that you have to understand that's going on in this. This isn't about how much you pray. This isn't just about how much you're fasting. This is about how much are you relying on Christ to do for you what only Christ can do? Here's what I imagine happened. This is my guest, my best guess at what, what's taking place here. If you recall back in chapter 6, when Jesus sends out the disciples two by two, and they're driving out demons, and they're, they're proclaiming the gospel, and they're healing people, there's probably a little swag that's building up inside of them. Oh, look what we can do. What happens when that swag or that, that feeling of, man, I'm, uh, I'm doing pretty good in life. What, what happens in those moments? What happens when you're on that mountaintop, when you're feeling really good about yourself? You know what happens? You stop relying on Christ. You stop relying on the power of prayer. If I came to you and preached a sermon every Sunday and I did not bathe it in prayer, in prayer, like this thing is going to implode upon myself because me and my own nature, I cannot rely on my own goodness or, or lack thereof to come up here and present to you what I think the gospel is telling us for today if I am not relying on Christ to speak through me. And my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, you cannot afford yourself to ever think that you're in a moment where you do not need Christ and where you think that your life with Christ is just on cruise control. Oh, man, I've been, I've been nailing it out the park. I've been, I've been sharing Christ. I've been, I've been praying and God's been listening. I've been, I've been hearing me. And all these great things are happening. But you forgot to rely on Christ, the one who gave you the strength to do all of that then you've missed it. I imagine these disciples had such a swag where they forgot about the one who gave them the power to do the thing that they were doing. That 
can never be the story of God's church. And that can never be the story of us that we reached this incredible high. Oh man, you see all those people coming in. You see, we have all these really cool ministries. We have all of these great things happening. Yet we are not relying on Christ. There's a problem. May the doors of God's church be shut when we are relying on our own strength, when we are relying on our own power to do something. God will humble you in a way that will bring you back down to your knees. And perhaps this was a humiliating experience for the disciples so that they could be brought back on their knees and remember that Christ was the king and the source of their power. Now, what, is these, what do all these things have to do with us? I've just got a couple of things uh, that I've jotted down, and it feels like it's 14 million degrees. I need everybody to stop breathing in this place this morning. Just a, just a few things that I wrote down. There's so much in this passage that reminds us of our weaknesses and our inabilities. And I have to tell you, that's a really good thing. So much of our culture, so much of false religions are telling us to be your best, be powerful, rely on your strength, but that is anti the Bible. The Bible was written by people who were weak. And this is a good thing. That in our weaknesses, Christ is glorified. In our weaknesses, Christ is magnified. And that's when Christ's power is made perfect. When these people did not have the ability to do what they thought they can do, Christ was on display. And it wasn't about the disciples, it was about Christ. The church does best when we are found in our weakest points. Isn't that just so anti-culture? Be strong. Be the best you. Be powerful. You know, it's like, it's like the way, and, and we, need, we need woman power here. We don't need man power no more. We need, woman, we need everybody to be so powerful and show your strength. But the Bible would counter that and say, be at your weakest. Because in your weakest, Christ's strength is made perfect. Who are you trusting for your strength? Are you relying in your own ability? As these disciples are relying in like past experiences and their own ability, or are you relying your strength in Christ? Another thing that I thought of and I wrote down that this is a call towards being confident in Christ. Again, it's not a reliance on us in our ability or disability. It's a reliance on the power of Christ. And that's it. It just doesn't get no, that is it. Jesus answers him. And when he says, you know, if you can, and, the, and Jesus responds to him and says, um, with God, anything, what is impossible for God? Nothing. Now, this isn't a call for us to have our wish list and start praying for like something magical or, or like something like, you know, grand, the large house, the big car, the nice car, the, the, the sexy spouse or whatever you want to just pray for. That's not what he's talking about here. This is a call for us to pray. This is a call for us for when we pray, our will aligns with God's will. 
It's a call for us to be confident in Christ and what he and he alone can do. You know, I, I love the interaction with Jesus and with people, and I'm almost done. Anytime somebody, is, you know, they have questions and they're, they're saying, you know, if you can or, or what are you going to do, Jesus? I, I love that Jesus never responds to people and he never looks at them and says, you know what? That's a great question. What am I going to do? First, let's ask you, what is your heart telling you? What's the impression you have? What's your feeling? What's your emotion? Jesus now do you? Jesus never asked someone, well, boo-boo, how are you feeling about it? What's your heart say about what I should do? As if you are the determining factor on what Christ is supposed to do. As if, as if the God of the cosmos is waiting for you to say how you feel. It's a shame. No, no, Christ already knows the answer. Christ already knows what you need. He's not looking for you to, to expound on it and, and give your interpretation of it. It's that we are confident not in our feelings. We are confident not on what our heart says because the word even says our heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? It is, are we confident in Christ that's where our confidence is. And lastly, every person who is a believer will battle unbelief. But I got to throw in a big butt right there. Every person, every Christian, every believer will battle unbelief. But the presence of unbelief in us is often subtle. And like sin, if we rest in our unbelief, there's a spiritual danger to that. Because Christ doesn't want anyone to settle in their unbelief. Does he, does he ever look at a disciple when they say, I'm doubting, or, or they have questions, and he, and he looks at him and says, okay, just continue to doubt and continue to disbelieve. No, what does Jesus do in disbelief and doubting times? He exposes it, brings it to light. While, so I say all those things. While, yes, you will have times in your life where you are disbelieving something or there are doubts in your faith, listen to me. Christ loves you too much to let you sit there and waddle in it. And he will expose the disbelief and he will expose the doubt, not because he's an unloving God, but because he wants you stronger in your faith. Now, how all that works out, that's for you. But make no mistake, yes, the Christian life is filled with disbelief. Yes, we have questions. Yes, we want critical thinking. But please understand that Christ loves us too much so that we would settle in a life of doubting and disbelief. He just loves you too much. He wants you to overcome those things. And sometimes you'll overcome it by Christ disciplining you. Forcefully bringing you out of those disbelieving times. 
And this, this last question that, that we have, and we, we resound with the Father when he meets Jesus, is, yes, I believe, but help my unbelief. And so maybe you're here this morning, and maybe you say, you know what? I'm floundering. I kind of get this whole Christianity. I'm just not there because I still don't believe. Listen to me very carefully. God is not going to leave you in that disbelief. Jesus loves you too much to let you just sit there. And the fact that there are signs of belief in your life is evidence that the Holy Spirit is drawing you, that the Holy Spirit is saving you. And the response that we have to the Father is, I believe. And this last question is, is what are you trusting? Who are you trusting? Because ultimately, that's what this text is about. It's a matter of, do we trust Christ and his infinite power? Who are you trusting?